think that there's great potential. So if you would, in, in join with me, praying with us as we consider that space and finding a new home, because this place might not be open to us much longer. So um, the Lord seems to be moving, and we're grateful for that, but continue to pray for that. That being said, I want to uh, begin just some minor notes on this series. This is the last sermon in a series that we've titled Repent and Be Loved. Repentance, we say, is turning from our godlessness and turning to God. Many people think of repentance as turning from our godlessness to godliness. But Luke 15 reminds us that repentance is not that. Repentance is turning from our godlessness to God, who has great mercy and love. Oh, that we would see his mercy and love and turn, with, turn to him in that great love. We're reminded of such a statement in Romans 2, where, where Paul tells the people of the church of Rome, saying, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God causes us to turn from our godlessness to God. And this is what I've been asking all of us to do in four particular areas of our life. In the areas where we look to for acceptance, significance, um, control, and then this morning we're going to be looking at turning to God for our comfort. Our comfort. Oh, that we would turn from the things of this world, the vanities of this life, and turn from those things for hope and peace and salvation and turn to God. For it is God whom we have comfort. That's the thesis of today's sermon. And today's reading comes from Psalm 16, a mictum of David. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 16. If you don't, it's printed for you in the bulletin. Let me read now the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the reading of God's word. In the mid-90s movie, Dumb and Dumber, the character Lloyd Christmas, played by Jim Carrey, walks towards the exit of a hotel bar. And as he walks towards that door, his attention is grabbed by a framed newspaper clipping with the headline, Man Walks on the Moon. Now, in his typical stupidity, and it's a comedy for those of you that don't know, in his typical stupidity, Christmas becomes absolutely floored with the headline. Now, mind you, in this time, the moon landing had taken place some 25 years before this moment. And so that's the funny part of it. And with great excitement, he leaves the hotel bar, enters into the lobby, and says with great excitement, we've landed on the moon. 
course, the moment is incredibly comedic. Anyone who watches the scene knows that we have landed on the moon and it has taken place for a long time before that. But here's the thing. His reaction, I don't think, is actually all that outlandish. We have landed on the moon. I mean, consider this reality for just a moment. We've landed on the moon. I mean, my, as my mind considers the great difficulty of getting someone on the moon and then getting them home, it's, it just boggles my mind. We've landed on the moon. Now, obviously, this is an this is, this is illustration of something that I've encountered recently with the church. At our church, we are a church that listens to the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. That means we take the doctrines of these great documents and we flesh them into our lives and we, it's the very thing that guides us and what's right and what's wrong and it's wonderful. But probably the most famous phrase of this Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms comes from the shorter catechism, question number one. The question and answer goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify him, glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. Just like Jim Carrey walked into the bar and sees that headline, and then walks into the bar. This is how I've been experiencing this statement in the last, I don't know, month or so. Uh, for those of you that don't know, we've been training up men to become elders, and one of the things is to, to study this Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and at the center of this is that statement, what is the chief end of man? And, and so I'm trying to flesh this out in the men who've been studying this and, and working this out, and it's hit me like, like the reality of man on the moon for the first time. Oh my gosh, the chief end of man is, did you guys know the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Did you know that? Like, I knew, I, of course I've known that. Some of you have met with me in the last few weeks, and, and I have been astounded by this reality of this statement. It's like the man on the moon thing. Did you know that we are created for joy? This statement says that we were, did you know that, that not only are you to be a glorifying of God, but did you know that you can enjoy God? That, that life is about joy? Do you know that? I feel like Jim Carrey walking in the hotel bar. The joy that you long for, it's legit. It's real. It's real, guys. Don't run from it. You were created to know joy. Do you know that? Yes, I think most of us know that. And we fight that. But I think there's another reality in the midst of this joy that we were made for. Joy that this document tells us. That while we were made for joy, life is also full of pain and suffering. You're probably reminded of this on a daily basis, if not weekly basis, that life is made of suffering. But I remember there was a point in a moment last year when I was getting ready to tee off to play golf. Just a, a chance for me to just enjoy friends and a game. And the golf pro walked out and he had this hat. And he said, hey, this is a hat for Nate. Now, Nate is a guy that I would play golf with from time to time, but Nate was suffering at the time from cancer. And the golf pro brought a hat out just so that all the guys that played golf with him would sign it as a testament to just we're thinking and praying about him. Just as a real sweet touch. And I remember signing the hat as I was getting ready to tee out to play golf and going, man, this is hard. And, and not many days later, Nate, who was about my age, he was back my age, he was 38 at the time, he would die to complications of cancer. You know, you have this joy of, you know, maybe a recreation, but in the midst of, of this joy and comfort that we seek, 
There's pain and there's suffering, and we're reminded of this all the time. And it creates this tension in all of our lives, that we are made for joy, but in the midst of this being made for joy, there's great suffering and pain and tension. And what do we do in the midst of this tension, of this made for joy, but life is hard, that tears wet our beds? What do we do with this? Like you, I, I live in this tension as well, and, and we have to do something about this, right? Uh, but we do something about us, about this tension. Now, some of, it some of us block it by continuing to, to, to pursue experience after experience, and that we don't stop seeking after these experiences. We chase moments that we think will bring us joy and forever joy. We go on these vacations thinking that the, the vacation is going to relieve us of the anxiety of our day. But you know this, when you come home from that vacation, what's greeting you the next day? The same anxiety that you left. The tension comes right back to your life. Now, some people seek it through experiences. Others ex seek to do it by running from it, by numbing this tension with substances, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or just choosing to quiet the sound, sticking our head and, oh, no, this is not happening. But this tension cannot be resolved in us. I'm telling you, it will not be resolved in us. Is there any other way in our, out of this tension I think when we turn to Psalm 16, though, we actually find the door to the relief of our tension. In this poem, David, the King David that many of us know from history, the one who slung the stone and knocked out Goliath, David finds his comfort from God alone. He says in verse 11, you, that is God, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see this. He ends it saying, God, there is joy in you. Joy. I was made for it. In you, I find it. He doesn't find joy and comfort from the kingdom that he ruled over. No, David is not looking to his wealth or military victories. He's looking to God and God alone. Now, you might be saying, oh, this is silly, right? His life, he's the king. He's, he's free of all sorts of trials and tribulations, right? No. I mean, in verse 1, look at how he begins the poem. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, what's the basis of this? We don't know. But I think it's safe to say that David is experiencing the trials and tribulations of life. So in the midst of the trials and tribulations of life, guess who's finding comfort and joy? David. And why is he finding comfort and joy? Because he's looking to God for comfort and joy. The doorway to finding comfort in the tension of our lives comes when we place our attention on God. And David knows this. And in the rest of his psalm, he's helping us to grasp this and understand this, to have the knowledge and the wisdom and the insight for how we might pursue this as well. That's what the rest of this psalm is. And what we see in this psalm is that David finds comfort from God amidst life's tension because of a couple things. He has a perspective on life that we need to embrace. His commitment to thankfulness permeates his life, and he has embraced hope from God. Look, I want all of us to walk through this door that David does, that we might find relief from the tension that, that this desire for comfort 
and, and, and the reality of difficulties and trials comes. It is my hope that we walk through this following David's footsteps that we too might take joy and comfort in our God. But in order for us to do this thing, we've got to gain the perspective, gain the perspective of David. We need to learn to live thankfully and then we need to embrace the hope that God brings. Let's study these three realities that David had that we might follow in his footsteps and walk in the joy and the comfort of life that comes with God. First, let's gain perspective. Look with me at verse four, how David says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David here is looking at how people live and he makes a conscious decision to not live like them. In fact, he says, I'm going in the opposite direction. I will not pour out like they do. So instead of running after their lives and the gods that they pursue, David chooses God because he has this perspective. The gods of this world, the small g gods, will always require blood. Your blood, your sweat, and your tears. You're always going to have to pursue. You're always going to have to seek after the things of this world. And David has the perspective that such, <laughs> such a reality is not his own. You know, it's easy for us to see this verse and dismiss it completely because we don't often see the world bowing down to little idols or making blood sacrifices at temples. But think, such thinking is naive. The little g gods here that David is referring to is anything other than the true God, the true God that we look to for life. These little gods can be our children, the acceptance by our peers, the winning record of a sports team, our jobs, our clothes, our looks, the fame we seek, the power we seek, and even the religion, especially religion. Speaking from the heart, I could probably go through each and every one of these small things, these little gods, and confess to you how I've looked to comfort from these realities. But we have to see this perspective of David. He's saying that these gods will only lead to an increase of sorrows. They're not going to give us the true comfort that sustains us in the midst of life troubles. They're continually going to ask for us more and more and more. Give me more. Give me more. You know, the reality is, though, life is that as we grow older, some of the tasks that we've looked to for life, we're not able to do. As we grow older, we won't be able to, to lean on our appearance if we look to our appearance for acceptance and comfort because we grow older. As we grow older, our children might leave the home and the mistakes that they make then often come to us with great shame. You know, looking to anything but God will require the constant sacrifice that you will not ultimately be able to keep. And David understands this perspective and goes the other way. Will you? The gods of this world will never relieve the tension of life. They are only gonna ask for more. A few years ago, Jim Carrey, the one who played Lloyd Christmas, gave a commencement speech at Mariachi International University. And you might think that the man who played Lloyd Christmas in Dumb and Dumber was in fact dumb, but you would in fact be incredibly wrong. To this group of graduating seniors who were about to go into the world, make money and find meaning, he said to them this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous like me and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that it's not the answer. 
Having received the comfort from the material possessions of the world, Carrie learned that those who don't provide comfort and joy like the world presents them to. Like David, he had gained the perspective that these little things of this world do not satisfy. They don't provide the comfort that we think they will. Oh, that we would take this perspective without having to learn the hard way. That we would learn from our experiences and look to God for our comfort. Embracing, embracing this perspective of David. How do we do this? How do we embrace the perspective of David? One, I think we need to see, first and foremost, that not only does God not require blood and sacrifice from us to be with him, but that he sacrificed himself for us. The way that we begin to embrace this perspective is to see that God doesn't require blood, he actually gives it himself. And the mercy and grace of God is more profound than we could ever realize. We have to see that God gives his blood for us through Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think we need to do the hard work of, 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 of evaluating our lives and saying, what are the things that I'm looking to for comfort and life? The things that I'm looking to for ultimate comfort. This doesn't mean that the, 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 the things of this world, a vacation, Netflix, you know, spend, these are not bad. But are you looking to them to be the satisfaction of your comfort? I mean, you have to do the hard work of evaluating these things. If you're going to embrace this perspective, you have to do this hard work. Will you do that? Oh, that you would embrace the perspective of David, saying, I will not look to these things, little gods, for comfort in life. Finding comfort from God is where we have life. That's David's perspective. And I ask that you would embrace this. But we also have to see a second thing, that David makes a conscious decision to live thankfully. Not only did he embrace a perspective that the little gods would not satisfy his comfort, but he chose to live thankfully. Look at verse five. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David makes a conscious decision to give thanks to the Lord for the things of his life, his beautiful inheritance, his counsel, his presence. He's always at my right hand. He made the decision to live thankfully for the ways that God has blessed him. And he chose to do this and recognize the many blessings that he has. I want you to know that thankfulness is simply a reaction to a need being met. It is a tangible and meaningful reaction. But here's the thing about thankfulness. It requires discipline. Thankfulness does not come easy to us. Have you ever watched a child receive a gift at their birthday party? You know, they're being inundated with all these presents and they open it like it's going out of style. <laughs> One after the other. And mo most, most of the time, the kids are not concerned about who gave them the presents and what went through it. They just, they're just tearing through it. What do I get? What do I get? What do I get? Now, this is why parents rightfully come alongside them and they make them write thank you cards to the people who gave them those, those gifts because it doesn't come natural to them. 
They just want to play with the gifts. All right, me, 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 me. We're no different. We're no different than our little kids. And, and we need someone like myself to say, guys, we need to be disciplined in looking at the good things of our life and giving thanks to the one who gave them to us. We need to live thankfully like David. If we're gonna find comfort in God, we need to recognize that the good things of this life, our Netflix, our vacation, our friends, a golf round, our looks, whatever it is, they come from God. And because they come from God, we need to give thanks. Thankfulness, friends, requires discipline. It, re it requires us to humble ourselves and acknowledge that God is behind everything. We can do this in small actions. We can do this participating in a joyous moment and in the quiet of our mind, taking in a deep breath and saying, thank you, Lord, for making this possible. I can do this on the golf course as I'm ready to tee off, breathing in, spending time outside with friends, playing a game. You can do this when you sit down and eat, giving thanks to God for providing the meal before you. You can do this when you go to your home and you sit under your roof, regardless of whether that roof is leaking or not. You can say, Lord, thank you for this roof. You can do this when you get into your car and you drive to your work. Lord, thank you for this car. I mean, even the smallest things of life, the things that we just take for granted, we need to develop the discipline that these things are not to be taken for granted. We need to develop this discipline that we might not think that these things give us the comfort. When we de de develop this discipline of thankfulness, we put these things in their proper place, that they are gifts from God, their needs that God provides for us. We, we read this in our confession today, did we not? We have longed for the dust of the earth and have been full of care about what we will eat, what we will drink, and how we will be clothed. But do you know where that comes from? Matthew 6. And you know what Jesus says right after that? Does not your heavenly Father know that you need these things as well? He gives those things to us. Oh, that we would have the discipline to live thankfully like David. And then, then we will begin to find our hope and comfort from God, even in the midst of tension. So if we're going to walk through that door that relieves us of, of this tension of life where we desire comfort, but yet there's hardship and the difficulty, we gotta embrace the perspective of David that the little gods aren't going to provide us the comfort we want and we need to develop the discipline of living thankfully but there's one last reality that we need to take from David and that is that we must embrace hope. We must embrace hope. Verse nine, David says this, therefore, and we have to see this in light of the, the refuge that he's seeking from God. We have to see this in light of the difficulties that he's experiencing. He's saying, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That is his understanding of hell or let your Holy One see corruption. I want you to see this. David embraces hope from God, because God is the one who gives hope even amidst death. He embraced this hope, and it brought him gladness and joy even in the face of great trials and difficulties. I'll be blunt with you guys. I think one of the reasons we have this tension is because death is a reality, and we're always having to wrestle with this reality of death. 
Death is the ultimate tension producer. Yet in looking to God, David finds hope even in the face of death, the great tension producer. Now, why, where would David find this hope? My guess is David found this hope from stories like Enoch in Genesis. My guess is he found hope in stories even from 1 Samuel 31 when, when Samuel is brought to Saul's attention through the witch at Endor. There's this reality that, you know what, there is life after death. And God is the one that does it. It's a very limited, uh, you know, like sample that David had, but he still trusted that God was overcoming death. He believed that God preserved life after death, and this brought him hope. Yet, as Christians, we have far more reason for hope than even David. And we have that reason because of the resurrection of Jesus. We as Christians look to Jesus Christ, who after dying and was buried, he rose from the grave. And the acknowledgement and the belief that God overcame death in Jesus is the very pathway for us to find hope even in the face of death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 comments about Jesus' resurrection, saying, hey guys, he's the first fruits, meaning he's just the first of a lot more to come. That those who look to Jesus will indeed one day be resurrected from the dead and be like him. This is our hope. I know of no greater reason for the Christian faith than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I wonder, do you know this hope? Do you know this hope in the face of the tension that death creates in all of our lives? Indeed, it brings us great hope. A few years ago, Tim Keller, the pastor of a church or former pastor of a church in New York City, sat down with a professor at Columbia University. And he did this in front of hundreds to share his faith and to talk about why he believed what he believed. And it's a, it's a well worth your time. You can find it on YouTube. But there's one particular moment that's, that just stands out to me. And he's talking about a time when he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And so in the midst of his thyroid cancer, he had a lot of time on his hand because he needed to rest and needed to go through this chemotherapy. And so he said, I just had to sit there. And so for 30, 30 days, I sat there. And I, I, there was this book by a man named N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's this 800-page of scholarly work that's, that's based on this thesis that the resurrection of Jesus is the only... Is, is, is a plausible explanation for resurrection. That is the only plausible explanation for the resurrection based on all the history that we have. It's 800 pages of proof that indeed the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. And Keller said, as I'm reading that, I, of course I believed in the resurrection. But when I closed that book, my belief dropped three floors deeper. That my faith got deeper and I believed, holy cow, Jesus really did rise from the grave. It's the only plausible explanation on all the history and all the science. It's the only explanation. And he said, my belief dropped three floors. You know what my hope is for you right now? That as you ponder the reality of Jesus' resurrection, I'm not giving you this great apologetic for the resurrection, but as you stop and think, did Jesus, Jesus really did rise from the dead. That you would sit there in absolute amazement and you go, oh, okay. He has the power over death. I'm gonna look to him. I'm gonna look to him for comfort rather than myself.
Oh, friends, <laughs> that we would embrace the hope that God gives through the resurrection of Jesus. In the HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers, we get a picture how often we deal with the tension of life in the episode titled Karen Tan. The episode follows this private named Albert Blythe who was overcome with the trauma of war when he parachuted into France and had bullets flying over his head. He, he really struggled to engage in the fight that was at hand. Paralyzed his fear, one time he, he ended up in a foxhole and every time the artillery started banging around his head, he began to shake and he froze and he couldn't move. He was so scared. And in the midst of this shaking one time, a valiant lieutenant named Spears approached him in the foxhole and he came to him and he said to him in a very stern and I guess gracious way and said this. He said, Blythe, you know what your problem is? You still think there's hope. The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier. Something clicked in Blythe when Spears told him that. He took those words to heart, and he overcame the trauma and the shaking and the fear, and he began to fight. What liberated Blythe to fight? How are these words that Spears gave him at all liberating for him? I think it's this. Blythe finally came to the realization that left to himself, he could not resolve the tension of war. That left to himself, like, he's probably gonna die. That if he sat there and did nothing, he's probably gonna die. So he might as well fight. Look, every one of us in this room was made for comfort and joy. But every one of us also faces the trials, the temptations, and the pains of this life. All of us face the reality of death. And where we look to to resolve this tension is vitally important. If we look to the things of this world, if we look to ourselves and our own wisdom and in our own insight, we will end up like in the foxhole, trembling with fear. <sighs> How do I do this? I can't do this. It's not going to resolve me. We need to hear David's words like, like Spears did to Blythe. We need to hear the words of Psalm 16, where David comes to us and presents to us a different way of resolving the tension that we have by calling us to look to God. Here, David tells us to gain a perspective of the gods that we seek, how they only require more and more of us and that they will never satisfy. They will only lead to disappointment. To gain this perspective and to choose God. He then models for us a thankfulness that recognizes all the good gifts that we have are indeed from God, that we would embrace this and live a disciplined life of thankfulness and that we would embrace, finally, the hope of God in the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, David here presents to us a different way of thinking about this tension. He says, go to God. Go to God. Go to God. And I think, like Blythe, hearing those words of Spears, that we can then begin in the tension of our lives to live courageously and fearlessly. Oh, that we would embrace this. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you for a psalm that relieves the tension that so many of us feel.
this tension of desiring comfort and joy, but also living in the world of difficulty and sorrow and trial and tribulation and death. Oh, that we would follow David's lead, looking to you. You have given us great reason to trust in you. May we repent. Yes, Lord, grant to us repentance that leads to life by turning from our godless ways and turning to you, God. For it is in you we find great comfort, hope, and peace. Amen.